0: ETF Prime is hosted by investment advisors of the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF.com or any of its affiliates. ETF.com's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF.com of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
2: All right, fun show this week. Joining me will be Harry Witten, head of ETF sales trading at Old Mission Capital, who's an ETF market maker. And Harry himself is simply an excellent all-around industry resource. I've actually known Harry for several years now, and I'll tell you, There's not much in the world of ETFs he doesn't have a very colorful opinion on. And so we'll certainly discuss what exactly Old Mission does and how they're involved with ETFs. I also want to ask Harry about best ETF trading practices. But then I have several rapid fire ETF questions we'll get into, including a favorite topic of mine, Bitcoin ETFs, which I I guarantee you, Harry's going to give me a hard time on this. I, I just know it. Now, also later, I'll be joined by yet another tremendous ETF industry resource, Amrita Kumar, president of Biden Investment Advisory, who operates one of the most successful sub-advisory businesses in ETFs. And to me, this is a bit of a sleepy area in the industry. I, I definitely feel like ETF sub-advisory flies under the radar but it's extremely important to the ETF ecosystem and really helping support the growth we're seeing in ETFs. And so I'll have Amrita explain what an ETF subadvisor does. And I think that'll naturally get us down the path to some other ETF topics, including non-transparent ETFs, which Biden is getting involved with as well. And I should note, Amrita was previously with Vanek, who's a top 10 ETF issuer, Before that, she was with Vanguard, of course, the second largest ETF issuer. So you're talking about a person who really knows ETFs inside and out. Now, to start this week, I have ETF.com's Drew Voros on the line with me from California. We're going to discuss the single largest ETF launch in history, which actually occurred last week. Time now for our weekly chat with the experts at ETF.com the world's leading independent authority on ETFs.
3: I think we're seeing a different way of ETFs being launched. The real kicker was governance, selling a private data. They really let down their customers repeatedly.
2: Drew, always a pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Nate. Okay, so last Thursday, we saw the single largest ETF launch ever. And this wasn't a a flashy fund, right? This wasn't a Bitcoin ETF. This was the BlackRock U.S. Carbon Transition Readiness ETF, ticker LCTU. This took in a whopping $1.25 billion on its first day of trading. Now, clearly this was seeded with institutional money. I, I saw the Financial Times reported that Calsters, the uh, California State Teachers Retirement System, they led this with $650 million. Uh, there, there were some other larger investors as well. But I I think regardless, this is still impressive, right? A billion-dollar-plus haul on the first day. What did you make of this?
3: Well, I think um, BlackRock's doing something no one else can do. They're they're corralling institutional investors of the magnitude, like the California Teachers Pension, um, and putting them into vehicles that a lot of uh, institutional investors want, which is ESG. Um, they're given mandates. They have They're probably more apt to be a little bit more politically active with their money coming from pension funds um, that might have some political leanings as well. So I think they're being able to find these big clients, uh, produce a product that they basically customize in a very broad sense of an ESG product that's fitting all uh, pulling all the levers that the, the client wants, uh, and that's something all the public can also join aboard. Um, so I don't think a big teacher's pension fund is going to invest in something they wouldn't want their own members to also invest in because that's exactly what they're doing. So if it's good enough for them, it could be good enough for other people. And it's, just, again, something I don't think any other issue, maybe Vanguard, can really corral it. And as you know, uh, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, has been on – Uh, a corporate platform, so to speak, on uh, holding companies to ESG standards, that's environmental, social, and governance standards. Um, And so they've been a leader and thought leader in that that capacity. So why aren't they? It would just make sense. Their products are going to start matching that mentality. And then there's clients that are really looking for that. And I've heard from sources that um, institutional investors, particularly on endowments and pension funds, are really asking for ESG contrast that to the retail audience, where that's not such the case. But these are told two totally different investors, retail and institutional. But the beauty is ETF is serving them both very well.
2: Yeah. And we should note there was also the BlackRock World XUS Carbon Transition Readiness ETF ticker, LCTD, that launched on the same day and took in uh, nearly $600 million. Drew, Drew, one question I have with ESG ETFs. Does it matter if it's just big institutional investors putting money to work here, the, the BYOA, right, bring your own assets, or do we need to see more organic retail investor and financial advisor demand to say there, there's truly real interest here?
3: It doesn't matter. Uh, I don't think Walmart cares what the customer is coming through the door, where they come from. Um, and I don't think ETF issuers on the whole are. Now, how you start an ETF is a whole different um, story. You can't just start a big billion-dollar ESG fund without having money. You can hope to start one, but if you're going to start one, you have to have the money, and that usually only comes from institutional investors. And like I said, there's a real bias on the institutional side in many of those uh, pockets to really focus more of their investments onto this sort of ESG label um, that that their um, members feel good about. That the endowments and the money is going towards something uh, a greater good if you will but what i also think is that you know institutional investors are also the early adopters of many of the etf uh, tools that are used by retail investors today so if it's around that's good as opposed to you know everyone launching esg funds that kind of go away because there's only five ten million dollars in it um, I don't think the teachers' pensions are going to be one of these uh, ETF bespoken products that are going to be out there for two years and they're going to pull all their money and go to something else. So I think that that's a really great foundation. It's going to, um, ought to you know, presumably give it some really good liquidity, keep the spreads low. Uh, and I think when people are going through a Google search and they come across uh, ESG ETFs, this is going to pop up and maybe that's a choice that's going to fit them as well. I think it's great.
2: One thing I did find interesting about th- these two BlackRock ETFs, they're not expensive, but they're not exactly dirt cheap either. So LCTU costs 30 basis points. LCTD mm-hmm. costs 35 basis points. And you may have seen this. Uh, I saw Dave Nottig out on Twitter. He said that these were, quote, pushing the edge of institutional pricing. I actually thought he had a good point there. I mean, when you think about somebody like Calsters pumping a, a huge chunk of money in, you know, 30, 35 bips, that's not nothing. And especially, you know, institutions—they'll go and negotiate down, you know, a few bips on on some of their plain vanilla exposure. I thought that was a good point.
3: It it, it sure is a good point. Um, but the other thing to think about is that people are willing to pay a little bit more for this, perhaps. Um, and I think uh, there's there's a focus on this is too expensive. This is too expensive, and we've been through fee wars uh, for years now, over a decade. Uh, but I also think we've gotten to a point where some people are, it's gotten so cheap. that So to to charge 30 basis points versus, say, 80 or 90, that might have been the case 10 years ago, uh, relatively speaking, you know, I think the, the fee compression will also land on those eventually. But at the start, um, maybe it's the idea that, you know, it's higher because of the way it was brought to market. It was higher because it's basically a product that had to be built, p- perhaps, uh, for teacher pension funds of that magnitude in California in mind, uh, and therefore maybe they had a little bit of a hand in designing it in the index. I'm, I'm not sure, uh, but there's obviously some cost uh, and an added value there for, for both sides of the parties that, that see why not pay a little bit more for something like this. I haven't dove into this particular product and see how much different it is than anything else. Uh, but again, that is also one of the criticisms of ESG is that you're giving up performance. Now, uh, performance may not just be on the price, it could be in cost. Uh, and we all know that, you know, cost is the one thing we can control.
2: Yeah, no, and that's, I bring that up because I think one of the debates around ESG, and we've talked about this on the podcast, actually, I think a few weeks ago, is this just a fee grab by ETF issuers and fund companies. And that's a whole nother debate. We're not going to head down that path right now. But, you know, I do think it is a consideration when you look under the hood, mm-hmm. how different are some of these products than plain vanilla exposure? Um, you know, looking at LCTU and LCTD, the, these basically select components from the Russell 1000 and MSCI World X USA, r- respectively, they're scoring companies on these five pillars that they're evaluating how well positioned a company is to transition to a low carbon economy. So mm-hmm. the, the reliance on fossil fuels, you know, use of clean technology, energy management, waste management, water management. I, I think the idea here is to identify which companies are transitioning the fastest. And, you know, we, we can debate sort of the efficacy of that approach and, and what the end result is. But I, I do think the fee discussion is relevant.
3: And at the end of the day, it's up to the investor to decide if it's want to pay that extra fee. You know, it, it, it's not the issuer's, the issuer's job is to put out a product that they feel will be the best product. And let's face it, issuers have to make money. They can't bend over backwards for, you know, these huge pensions and create products for them and charge th- three basis points. Um, it, it's just not going to work that way. Um, well, so. clearly
2: the institutional investors are comfortable paying those fees, especially if they're exactly. having a hand in, in constructing the index.
3: And maybe that's the difference here. Maybe this is not a retail. If you want cheap ESG retail, there's something else for you. This has been maybe thoughtfully designed differently. Again, it's up to the investor, it's not up to the issuer to decide, boy, I wonder if people are going to think this is too expensive. They think it's the right price, and for whatever reason, uh, there might have been some kind of cost built in that they had to get back.
2: One other angle here I wanted to ask you about, I saw on uh, on Twitter also that CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth, I-, I thought he articulated this well. He said, in one camp, there's strong retail demand for ETFs like ARKX, the ARK uh, Space Innovation and Exploration ETF, and then BUZZ, of course, the VanEck Social Sentiment ETF. He-, he said, you know, there's retail demand for those ETFs on day one. And then in this other camp, you have BlackRock lining up impressive institutional demand for LCTU. And both can work, which is true, of right? Course. Both can be catalysts for ETF growth. I think that's a good point this year.
3: And, and you know, that's so what I was mentioning how the ETF is working for both. Um, so it's not an issue. To you know, it, it could it may, maybe there's an ETF like this ESG ETF we're talking about that's not quite right for retail because it's a little bit more expensive. But that client wanted it, and for their sake. Maybe 30 basis points is extremely cheap than if they had tried to, you know, go to Wall Street and have a designed ESG fund just for their pension fund. So, again, the beauty of the ETF is in its universality, not just in where it can trade, but how it can trade.
2: You know I like to turn every topic into a Bitcoin ETF discussion. Can a Bitcoin ETF beat this new record? More more than $1.25 billion on the first day.
3: Um, you would think, but again, let's, let's think. So what if three come out on the same day, which we saw with blockchain right. ETFs? What if, um, you know, what if suddenly there's a dip in price that we're at 60,000 today? And for whatever reason, by the time ETFs roll out, we're down to 30. Um, but also remember, you know, it's going to be pretty tough. I think GLD, um, I mean, in the scope of things, GLD was a blockbuster. Um, And and again, it's kind of like looking at blockbusters from 1940 versus today. The money doesn't sound big, but at the time it was huge. And I think that it'd be fun to go back and kind of put the kind of relative context into the GLD launch, which was really the opening door of democratizing with ETFs where you're going to give people gold, but they didn't hold it. But the trade-off was you didn't have to go pick it up and you didn't have to have it, you know, make sure it was 99.9% gold and et cetera, et cetera. So it really kind of eliminated this whole difficulty of holding gold. Um, So Bitcoin kind of does the same thing because you don't have to have a password. You don't have to have all this other technology that made it very difficult for some people. Uh, But at the same token, a lot of people have Bitcoin and they didn't need an ETF to get it. Um, So the question is, are people going to cash out their Coinbase uh, holdings because they don't want to pay 1.5% in and out and go buy an ETF? I think that's going to be a tough bridge uh, to build.
2: Well, if 1.25 bill is the over-under, I'll take the over, which is probably no surprise to anybody. Um, Okay, Drew, just a couple minutes left, completely switching gears here. A topic I wanted to ask you about this week, which I guess actually has a slight tie-in to ESG ETFs, and and that's infrastructure ETFs, which have seen a pretty notable uptick in investor interest. And the ESG angle here is um, I'll, I'll tie in clean energy ETFs, just given what's in the Biden infrastructure proposal that was detailed last week. But there have been pretty healthy inflows here, decent performance. What do you think about the buzz surrounding infrastructure and clean energy ETFs right now? I feel like every other article I see is on this topic.
3: Sure, there's a lot of ways to look at it. And, I, and clean energy, I, I think that focus and that run-up had to do with a lot of Biden's talk during the election and after on, on sort of really not just a particular bill, but the whole idea that in his administration, green energy would be a priority not just you know, emphasis. Uh, so I think that carried it. And now with the idea that we're beyond the COVID um, stimulus and the, and the COVID aid, that now we have to look at the at the country and what, is, what does he want to do as his vision? And his vision is infrastructure. The problem here is that infrastructure is not just we're going to pave 100 roads and build 300 highways. It, it is a very broad term. It's about everything from, uh, you know, daycare centers to you know, after school centers, to other things that are are, are community based and, and and things that are missing in the community, as opposed to fixing potholes, which it's part of that as well. And there's a large part of that, um, so it's really hard to kind of define that. And we always have this, and, and ETF.com does it as well. You know, trying to match a headline with an ETF, uh, and that's a fun game to play, and it, it's fun because sometimes. You know, you discover, wow, there is an infrastructure fund that's built just for something like this. But once you get at it, and once you get at a lot of these themes, uh, you're looking at a lot of large cap companies. Um, So the other way to look at it that I think is overlooked a lot and has been with all these infrastructure stories that come out is simple material ETFs. Um, XLB, the material select sector, the spider fund, um, has been outperforming NFRA for a long time, by almost two times. Um, last year, um, XLB, of course, was a benefit, uh, benefited greatly from the beginning of the reopening uh, because it's, it's, it's hard materials. It's the things you're gonna build infrastructure with, right? It's gonna be, it's going to be um, the dirt, it's going to be the steel, it's gonna be the wood, it's gonna be all that stuff combined that companies sell um, that's going to build things. So I think people overlook commodities in, in the material sector a lot. Um, when it comes to the sort of this reopening trade, and with commodities, you know something like a diversity commo- P PDBC, the Invesco Optim- Optimum Yield Diversified Commodity Strategy, um, kind of gives you a broad uh, look at commodities because when the world opens up, you know commodities are going to be a, a driver, and they're going to be in demand. Uh, And we see that with oil. We see that with all kinds of things like that. So sometimes it's better to look uh, at what is, you know, what do those companies and infrastructure, what are they going to need? They're going to need materials. And I think we've seen that since the pandemic started. Everything from wood um, to other real materials have just been tough to source when things start to reopen. Um, So that's just one point I wanted to point uh, to make is commodities and materials are certainly uh, a definite uh, consideration in this realm
2: drew a minute left before i let you go i i did think we should mention the etf.com award ceremony that's quickly approaching uh, actually a week from today right uh that's still right still not too late to register
3: no free free to register we have a great entertainment portion as well actually fairly star-studded we're going to have um Reggie Brown, uh, our last year's Lifetime Achievement Award winner, is going to speak because he didn't have a chance last year because of the pandemic. And some big news. We just uh, added Kathy Wood, an interview with Cynthia Murphy of ETF.com. It's going to be a one-on-one session after the awards as well with other breakout sessions. And our keynote speaker is going to be uh, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, who are going to be talking your favorite topic, uh, uh, Nate, on Bitcoin (laughs) and basically overall disruption uh, that blockchain uh, could bring to Wall Street. Um, so the awards are great, but there's also there's going to be some really good uh, discussion. And we're also going to have entertainment. We're having Luca Closer, who's a young and upcoming musician. It's going to get We're going to be live from Hollywood. Uh, I'm going to be there along with Nick Harcourt, who's a radio TV personality in Los Angeles, well-known tastemaker, if you will. Uh, so I'd love everyone to show up next uh, Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Go to e and it's easy to sign up. Uh, Hope to see you there, too, Nate.
2: Yeah, no, I'll certainly be attending the event. Hope everyone listening attends. It's going to be a lot of fun, and and I'm really excited to see all the winners. I just think the the ETF.com awards every year, it's so much fun to see the innovation and all the hard work in the ETF space recognized. But, uh, Drew, thank you for joining me this week.
3: Always a pleasure, Nate. Take care.
2: That was ETF.com's Drew Voros. My next guest is Harry Witten, head of ETF sales trading at Old Mission Capital, who's a market maker with specialized expertise in the ETF space, one of the largest on-screen liquidity providers out there. And Harry is now on the line with me from New York. Harry, welcome to the podcast. This took way too long.
1: Hey, Nate. Yeah, thanks for having me. I guess as they say... uh... Longtime listener, first time caller.
2: <laughs> well, you uh, know it's so funny. Be here. You and I have chatted so many times uh, before, but somehow this is your first ETF pr- uh, Prime appearance. Uh, th- this is going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this. Um, so, look first. Just explain to everyone what Old Mission Capital does, especially as it relates to the ETF market.
1: So, Old Mission uh, Capital. We are a market maker. We are. Our core competency is market-making ETFs. We've been doing it for over a decade. And as you mentioned before, we, for years, have been one of the largest on-screen liquidity providers, which means when someone goes out and looks at the screens and they see a bid and an offer, there's a good chance that Old Mission is putting out that price there. So you could be trading with us some way, shape, or form, and you never even knew it. Uh, and besides ETFs, we are ADR market maker and options market maker, and we actually also do uh, some bond trading.
2: So on that ETF market making, uh, if I'm a larger institutional investor and I need to execute a sizable ETF trade, just to be clear, I can come to Old Mission Capital and theoretically I'm going to get better pricing, better execution. Is that fair? You could come to Old
1: Mission and we will work with you. As we like to say, we're consultive. So we will work with you and tell you the different ways you can trade. That could be anywhere from a risk trade where we give you a price right away to maybe there might be other opportunities um, that you haven't thought about when it comes to working the trade through the market. Um, There's very many different ways that people can trade an ETF, and uh, we will work with you on that. So, yeah, we trade with pension plans and insurance companies, uh, large ETF model makers. We even work with the issuers. Uh, We pretty much – We'll trade with anybody that touches an ETF.
2: Well, and I think as you were alluding to earlier, you also provide liquidity for the major custodians as well, right? The the Schwabs and Fidelities of the world? Correct. So uh,
1: Old Mission, like uh, other market makers are out there, we work with all of the ETF trading desks at those firms to uh, provide liquidity. So they will come into us and we will talk to them and we will work with them on uh, trading uh, any ETF that's out there. We make markets at all. I think it's 2500 and 25 ETFs right now, and we make markets in all of
2: them. Well, on that note, I know you work closely with the ETF issuers to really better understand their products, which then I assume that helps ensure higher quality execution on trades. What does that process look like in terms of partnering with issuers and really getting a good handle on what they're doing?
1: So when uh, when it comes to working with the issuers, we work with them in many different ways. And, and the most basic way is when they launch a product, we hopefully make sure that they let us know that they're launching a product so we can have a price day one for uh, anybody who's looking to trade it. Uh, We work with them whenever there's a change in the product. Uh, And market makers get files to look at the holdings. And if we see a discrepancy, we'll reach out to the issuer and say, hey, is this right? Sometimes we pick things up that they're not aware of um, or vice versa. They're telling us there was a change and make sure that we're aware of it. Uh, it's a constant all-day conversation, and when it comes to the bond funds specifically, uh, we work with them on the creation redemption process, and you know they're in-kind baskets, and our traders are working with them
2: all day long to make sure these baskets are done properly.
1: Can, so can there's I, a lot of communication between us and the issuers.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of high-quality execution, particularly for? some of the more illiquid ETFs out there, perhaps a new ETF coming to market. Um, Talk about why that's so important in the ETF space.
1: Well, I think, you know, especially on a new product, there's still a little bit of an unknown. You know, when someone's, you know, we always hear the story, I'm not going to touch that ETF because there's no volume in it. Well, right then and there, that's the perfect opportunity to call a market maker. They can tell you where it's going to trade compared to what you're seeing out on the screens, why it's going to trade that, um, and you know, it's something you really shouldn't be afraid of because uh, anything could ever be anything could be traded. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, the communication and talking through the trade and what's best for your, the client and or if you are the end client for you.
2: As ETFs have continued to grow and there, there's been this rotation away from mutual funds in, uh, into ETFs, have you seen a tightening of spreads and, and, you know, better execution quality just with more interest in the ETF market overall?
1: Um, yes. I think what's amazing is you know, there's these systems out there called RFQ. Where we crest for, for quote. TradeWeb has one. Bloomberg has one. We're on both of them as a market maker. And it's amazing not only how tight the trades go up, but how large the trade goes up. I mean, we see two, $300 million trades that go up you know, a penny over what you see on the screens. It's, the pricing has gotten much, much tighter. It's really, really amazing to see just in the last five years.
2: Okay, before we move on here, because I have some fun ETF questions for us to get to, for smaller ETF investors, so just everyday retail investors or financial advisors, given everything that you've seen over the years, can you offer a few trading tips? I I know everyone preaches using limit orders. Uh, What's most important when buying or selling ETFs? I
1: think what's most important, like we talked about, you know, old mission trades for the custodians, is call your custodian. I mean, your custodian has really good people on their trading desks, and you can reach out to them, and they, in turn, will reach out to us. So uh, don't. Uh, a lot of people just don't take advantage of that. It doesn't cost anything to call these people. Uh, I would, that would probably be number one to do. If you have any questions whatsoever, call your trading desk at the custodian. Okay. whether you're a retail or an institutional client. Well,
2: what if it's a retail investor who maybe isn't comfortable taking that approach? I mean, are there some basic things that they should do? Uh, again, I mean, should they always use limit orders? Does it depend on the exposure, times of day to, to put in trades, anything along those lines?
1: Well, I think, yeah, I think a limit order always makes sense, especially on new products. I know some custodians, when you look to go trade a new product, uh, the hot product of the day, uh, they, don't, they make you put a limit order on, which I think is great now. It used to not be that way. Uh, I also think... Um, you know, you probably heard this a lot, stay away from the open, you know, let these products open up, you know, because the ETF is only opening based on what's inside the ETF. So if there's a bunch of stocks that haven't opened up yet, the ETF is going to be wide, then it'll tighten up. So it's always best to, you know, as we say, 945 or after, you know, those market on open trades could be trouble. I'd stay away from those. That's probably the, the two biggest things. Or three biggest things.
2: I, I, I know cool. sometimes, uh, well, I was going to say, I know sometimes you'll hear this narrative that the deck is stacked against retail investors when trading. Is there anything to that? I, I mean, any insight you can offer here? Is that a non-issue in the ETF world?
1: I think it's a non-issue. We give the same pricing to whether it's a retail investor or an institutional investor. Okay. All and right. It's, it's all the same to us.
2: Harry, with our remaining time here, uh, what I thought might be fun again is is just given how connected you are in the ETF space, which, by the way, I set you up big time at the top of the podcast. So I've set a really high bar for you here. But what I thought we might do Uh is go (laughs) go rapid fire through some different topics. And I'll just tee tee these up and we can bat them around a little. So let's start high level and I'll continue with my poor uh, baseball metaphors here. Uh, What inning of growth are ETFs in right now?
1: I would say third.
2: Okay, and what I do you guess. what do you base that on?
1: Uh, they're still young. I mean, we're going to start seeing all the mutual fund issuers come into the game now with these conversions. I think it was just announced this week. Dimensional is going to move four funds over uh, out, of mutu- out of the mutual fund into an ETF wrapper in June. Uh, that other fund group did it a couple weeks ago, so you're going to start seeing that, see more of these uh, old-school mutual fund companies enter. Uh, I think you're going to see more and more in the retirement plan space. I'm a big fan of the retirement plan space. I think ETFs are going to get in there deeper and deeper. I think that'll really help. If you think about it, a huge ton of assets in a mutual fund space are in retirement plans. So I think that'll really help. So I still think we're early to the game, still early to the game. And you're hearing more and more users coming out. So,
2: On, on a similar note, um, you see just about everything that's happening in the world of ETFs. I'm curious. What has you most excited moving forward? And this can be a, a broader takeaway or something more product-specific. What, what are you most excited about? I think
1: the most exciting thing and the thing to watch is these mutual fund, com- com- fund companies coming in. Uh, I'm really curious as to what they're going to do. I mean, a couple have already put their toe into the water a few years ago. Um, you know, you think about PIMCO. They're really a mutual fund company. They've been around in the space for a long time. BlackRock, obviously, as we all know, has a huge mutual fund company. Uh, but, you know, you have American funds, you have, uh, we just talked about Dimensional, and all these other fund groups that are looking to come into the ETF space. So I think that's going to be really, really interesting to watch.
2: And do you think the catalyst there is the, the, the mutual fund to ETF conversions along with the, the semi or non-transparent wrapper? I mean, is that the reason why these mutual fund companies are getting involved? Or do you expect to see just more straightforward, transparent ETF launches?
1: I think it's going to be uh, very, a lot of it's going to be transparent. And I think, you know, that you're looking at the tax benefits. You're looking at um, the overall costs. It's just uh, easier to distribute an ETF, I think, in the long run. And that's what they're all finding. And it's where the market's going. I mean, I'm not saying anything out of hand here when we look at the flows.
2: All right, given what Old Mission does, your firm really sees all sorts of new ETFs trying to make it in a highly competitive industry. You have an interesting perch. And we we know how competitive the space is, right? It's the Terror Dome, as Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas calls it. I'm I'm curious, what do you think the recipe for success is? How how does an ETF survive this? Uh, I think, you know, I actually come
1: from a different background, even though I've been an ETF for years, but I originally was in the distribution side. And a lot of people forget, and when we talk to new issuers, they forget that ETFs have to be sold. So it's all about distribution. You, You need to be forefront and upfront, and get the distribution going. That's where you're going to be successful. You can have the greatest ETF in the world, but if you have a new distribution, nobody's going to know about it. You need to get, need to get the word out there. They don't sell themselves. That's, I think that is the most important thing.
2: How, how does an upstart ETF issuer do that? I mean, that's, that's clearly a challenge. I mean, any, any suggestions on which route uh, they head to, to get that distribution?
1: That is the $10 million <laughs> question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. It's uh, when it comes to being uh, distribution. There's, I mean, you have the old traditional way of wholesalers, which all these new uh, mutual fund companies coming into the ETF space have these armies of wholesalers, which I think overall will help ETFs. But um, yeah, it's it's very difficult it, it, the, getting the shelf space. Um, it, I wish I could give you a good answer, but I don't have one.
2: All right. Overall, here I feel like we've done a little bit of ETF cheerleading, and so I I thought we should be balanced. What do you see is the biggest challenge facing ETFs right now? What, what gives you concern?
1: I still think it's it's, it's education. I mean, it still it still has to deal with education and people. You know, as we touched on it before, what, how to how to trade these things. People still don't understand. They, you know, we see it a lot. You know, somebody writes an article in Barrons over the weekend, and then on Monday, you see a whole slew of market orders and whatever symbol was mentioned in the paper. Um, not the best thing. So people. Still need education on how to trade these things because they are a tradable product. It's not like a mutual fund where it just happens to price at the end of the day.
2: Who do you think that responsibility falls on? Is it the issuers? Is it regulators? Is it everyone in the ETF ecosystem? Who should take the lead on ETF education? I think
1: everybody. Everybody. Should just be part of everybody's presentation.
2: Okay. Okay. All right, Harry. Lastly, before I let you go, um, I, I think you already know what I'm going to hit you with here. Give me your Bitcoin. thoughts on yeah, <laughs> me your thoughts on a Bitcoin <laughs> ETF. I, I'm nearly positive we'll see one approved at some point this year. Do you like this? Do you not like this? Any other hot takes? Uh, well, I'll
1: I'll just put it out what you know what I told you, Nate. I mean, there was what I think nine Bitcoin ETFs filed four years ago or so, something along those lines, and market makers were ready to price them then. If a Bitcoin ETF comes out this year, Old Mission will be ready to price it. Uh, we don't have any problem with it. It's just a matter of you know, all regulatory approval because there's other products that come out. Um, you know, we we learn how to price them as fast as possible. So, I, as a, from the a market maker standpoint, we're ready for it.
2: Do you have any opinion on why the SEC has been so slow to approve a Bitcoin ETF?
1: I just think it's like anything; they're just taking their time. Nobody wants to be on the wrong side of it, and. It's all about regulations. Uh, You know, there's always a lot of news about Bitcoin and hacking and stuff like that. You just need to be careful. Makes sense. Makes sense to me.
2: Well, uh, I still think, like I said, we'll see one here later this year. And uh, it's good to know that that you're ready and standing by to to price the thing efficiently. Uh, But, Harry, this was a lot of fun. We'll we'll definitely have to do this again. Thank you for joining me this week. Thanks a lot, Nate. I'll talk to you soon. That was Harry Witten, head of ETF sales trading at Old Mission Capital. I'm now joined by Amrita Nandakumar, president of Biden Investment Advisory, which is a subsidiary of Vidant Financial, who some may know offers several ETFs. But Vidant Investment Advisory is their ETF sub-advisory business, which currently totals about 45 ETFs with $8 billion in assets. And Amrita took on her role in October of last year after spending several years with Van Eck. She was Director of Corporate Strategy and Development there. Of course, FANEC is a top 10 ETF issuer. And prior to that, Amrita was with Vanguard as a Senior Investment Consultant. And I'm now very pleased to have her on the line with me from New York. Amrita, welcome to the podcast.
0: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, I'm I'm really excited about this conversation. And I thought probably the best place to start is just by jumping in, for people who are unfamiliar with the role of an ETF subadvisor explain that for us what does that entail
0: yes let's do it so i think it's important to note that in the ETF space we use the term subadvisor differently than the rest of the asset management industry in this case we're talking about the delegation of portfolio management responsibilities from the ETF advisor to us So my firm, as you mentioned, is Vidant Investment Advisory, or VIA, as our clients call us. You might hear me say VIA. So in the case of a passive strategy, VIA tracks the index and makes all portfolio management decisions with the focus on minimizing tracking error and portfolio trading costs. In the case of an active strategy, the ETF advisor would make decisions about which securities to hold and when, but ultimately trading decisions would be deferred to us. So we guide ETF sponsors through the product development and launch process, and we try to ensure that everything that needs to be addressed has been addressed. And we work closely with all of the other participants that are required to successfully launch the ETF. And after it is launched, we work closely with the ETF advisor to track that the fund is trading well, that spreads are reasonable, and that the fund is providing the exposures that it was intended to. And if changes need to be made, you know, for example, Transitioning to a new index or service provider will support the fund as needed and ensure or try to ensure as we can that those transitions are as seamless as possible. Uh, a subadvisor such as Zia will also provide introductions to the other critical players in the ETF ecosystem that are required to operate the fund. For example, trusts, administrators, custodians, legal compliance, exchanges, and most importantly, capital markets. A lot of people who come to us for the portfolio management trading capability, um, they, in many cases, find that they end up benefiting most from our deep cap markets relationships. You know, we are pretty hands-on in terms of finding a lead market maker for a new fund launch by preparing sponsors for those conversations and participating in those conversations if we're asked to. You know, we understand what potential LMM concerns are, and we try to address those head-on. And we also work closely with the market maker community after a fund's launch to ensure that there's an active market for the fund and that it's trading well. You know, there's so much that we're ultimately responsible for that is crucial uh, to a successful ETF. So I often use the analogy of a house uh, when it comes to VS services, the way that I think about it. You know, the house can be in the best neighborhood with the best floor plan and amenities, uh, but the house is going to be pretty useless without reliable heat. And electricity and water. So, to me, that's the role um, of an ETF subadvisor.
2: Okay, so that that's perfect because I think from an ETF issuer's perspective, you did a really good job there of explaining the value proposition of a subadvisor like Via and, and all the different things you do. Um, I, I guess maybe talk about what some of the decision points should be for an issuer on whether or not to even use a subadvisor to begin with. How do they go about that?
0: No, that's a great question. So generally speaking, ETF sponsors seek to work with us because they either don't have an internal trading capability for that underlying portfolio, um, but even if they do, they may not be able to manage the specific requirements of an ETF, such as calculating IIV, intraday indicative value, uh, managing the standard creation and redemption baskets, uh, generating custom baskets, and leveraging those capital markets relationships. So VIA, specifically, we try to distinguish ourselves by offering portfolio management services, trading the portfolio, and managing the various baskets in the primary market with authorized participants, APs, or market makers, which is generally referred to as providing capital market support. Uh, But we do a lot more than that that I think our our clients find very helpful and and why they want to work with us. So VIA specifically, we're very hands-on during the product development process, and we bring a lot of knowledge and experience that a newer issuer probably wouldn't have. So We take the time to understand the active strategy or the underlying index, and we talk to the sponsor about what this could mean for the trading strategy and how to minimize uh, trading costs. Uh, for example, if there are exposures in the strategy or the index that could be better achieved in a different way for example looking you know rather than holding some thinly traded frontier market security uh, we might suggest holding a single country ETF or even a P note i mean that's how in depth we get we, you know we give advice and we share best practices we've learned in terms of optimizing security selection to make the baskets as tradable as possible for market makers uh, you know because we've done this almost 45 times now <laughs> So we've seen almost every scenario and we can anticipate the hiccups that an ETF sponsor would be likely to face. And so we try to address those as early as possible uh, so we don't have to delay the launch process. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out as well that working with an ETF subadvisor advisor such as Zia generally lowers the price of entry into the ETF space. Uh, oftentimes, a potential client who calls us, and you know they're in the middle of the should we do it ourselves or outsource it decision process. And people, I think, often underestimate what it costs to build out an ETF-specific trading and operational infrastructure, and hiring PMs, portfolio managers, and traders, and operations personnel who have ETF-specific experience. Uh, it generally ends up being much more economical for newing and emerging, newer and emerging managers, I should say. Uh, but we're also a great partner for larger or more established managers who are not wanting to make that kind of investment. And so we do actually work with a number of ETF issuers who you'd probably be surprised to learn uh, aren't running the ETFs themselves.
2: So, Amrita, if I can just boil down everything that you've covered so far in terms of the role of an ETF sub-advisor, I I hear helping with product development, right, maybe providing feedback on the strategy itself, determining the best wrapper, uh, helping make introduction to... Uh, parties such as market makers, uh, exchanges, custodians, obviously handling the day-to-day management of the ETF. If it's index-based, minimizing that tracking error. Uh, you know, if it's if it's active, making sure that everything is is being traded properly behind the scenes. Uh, obviously, offering some some best practices. It sounds like maybe on on marketing and, and distribution. Is that a fair characterization? If I just boil down the role of an ETF subadvisor.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's perfect.
2: (laughs) And and I'm curious, so last week on the podcast, I actually visited with an ETF white label provider. What is the difference between what an ETF white labeler does and what VIA does?
0: I'm glad you asked because this is something that that comes up quite a bit. So a white label platform to launch an ETF is, I describe it as a turnkey service. It's essentially... Uh, A sponsor that lines up all of the fund service providers in a bundled solution. So an ETF trust, a fund administrator, compliance, transfer agency, Uh, and in some cases, if the white label has an affiliated bank, they might even be able to offer custody. So they seek to allow an ETF manager to plug and play to launch an ETF and just focus on managing the portfolio. However, The one set of services that generally aren't offered by white-label platforms are sub-advisory services because either they don't have the expertise or it just might not be, you know, simply just might not be an area of focus for them. And so that's where we come in. Um, What's great about us is that we can plug into virtually any platform, be it a white-label platform or standard ETF fund family that doesn't offer uh, the type of trading desk or capital market support that we do. So if an issuer has a specific set of service providers that they want to work with, uh, chances are we already partner with them. Uh, but if it happens to be a new relationship for us, it's not particularly difficult for us to start plugging in with them as well.
2: I'm not sure exactly what you can speak to. Are you able to give us a few of the ETFs you currently subadvise on? Or I guess at a minimum, uh, are you able to talk more about the types of products you subadvise
0: on? Yes, absolutely. So... We we tend to cast a pretty wide net, and so we look to provide our services to sponsors of index and active investment strategies, uh, whether it be an ETF, uh, an SMA, or mutual fund, or even UCITS funds. You know, we do quite a uh, quite a few UCITS with European clients, mm-hmm. and in partnership uh, with our friends over in Europe, uh, Han ETF. Um, but it's it's our team's deep background and extensive knowledge that has made ETF management our specialty, really our bread and butter. So in terms of asset classes, you know, we pretty much cover the whole gamut. So U.S. and international equities, you know, specifically focusing on emerging markets, uh, the fixed income spectrum, REITs, MLPs, currencies, derivatives. Uh, This year has been particularly fun already because we're already talking to clients about, you know, expanding further into metals and not surprisingly, crypto has been coming up quite a bit. Hmm. Uh, And so that's not to say that we absolutely can do everything. I wish that were true. Um, But we really do enjoy the process of evaluating a sophisticated strategy or a less common asset class and figuring out whether we could do it.
2: Are you seeing a pronounced increase in demand for sub advisory services? Because again, I mentioned the uh, the white label provider I visited with, uh, visited with last week. He indicated to me that their demand is off the charts; like they can barely keep up with it. Uh, are you seeing a, a similar acceleration?
0: Yes, I would agree. Um, in fact, I've spoken with that gentleman a few times in the past, and you know, it's uh, it's I like to call it champagne problems. It's a good problem <laughs> to have. Uh, We we definitely uh, have been very pleased by just the number and the diversity uh, of calls we've been getting just from really interesting managers who are very very thoughtful about what it is that they want to bring to the ETF space. And so uh, when I think about what's driving that demand, uh, you know, For me, it's probably three things that have really been contributing to that growth, especially new business growth. I think number one, and I think everyone would probably agree to this, the implementation of 6011 or the ETF rule, uh, which essentially evened the playing field and lowered the barriers to entry for would-be ETF issuers by eliminating the need for exemptive relief in many cases and allowing more issuers to utilize custom baskets. Uh, Second, I would say the approval of the non- and semi-transparent active wrappers. Uh, That seems to be inspiring active managers to look at ETFs as providing access to a distribution channel, which was not that interesting to them before, uh, given that they might have had concerns about front-running or having their strategies duplicated. And, you know, I would also point to the increasing general awareness and education of investors as it relates to ETFs especially financial advisors who are implementing ETFs into their portfolios more and more. Uh, yeah, I think the ETF industry has worked really hard uh, to provide that education and dispel some of the earlier myths around ETFs, uh, whether it's the larger ETFs or even folks like you, Nate, uh, who've done a really good job of providing a platform for people like me to talk about what we do and, and for you to be that non-biased uh, educational resource. And I'd say what's been most surprising is just how much of our new business has been driven by active managers. Uh, In many cases, managers that have been running their strategies for five or 10 years, maybe even longer. And what's helpful is that they seem to know what they don't know. And after talking to us for a few minutes, they recognize where we could be a good partner to get their strategy converted to an ETF and to allow them to be accessible to an investor it, that's a base that, in many cases, uh, wasn't able to access their strategies before.
2: Let's talk a little bit more about active managers coming into the ETF space, in in particular that that second bullet point you mentioned, which is non or semi transparent wrappers uh, now now coming to the forefront. I actually covered this topic with a Viden Financial CEO, Vince Burley, when he joined me last year, and as I told him. To be honest, I've been a bit skeptical that investors want this wrapper. I I feel like the transparency of the traditional ETF wrapper has been a selling point. And maybe that selling point has been a bit overstated over the years, but I still feel like investors prefer more transparency versus less transparency. Can you just talk a little bit more about what you see as the future in this
0: particular area? Yes, I'd be happy to. And, you know, it's funny, I think I've probably gone through the same evolution of, of views as I, I think you have, um, you know, I think you're right. When we think about one of the hallmarks of ETFs, it's transparency, you know, daily disclosure of holdings on a one day lag. So when I first heard about these wrappers, I, I immediately asked myself, you know, would investors be troubled to lose that transparency? And I wondered, you know, could that be a deal breaker? Uh, but now that I'm sitting in the seat where I am now, and you know the team and i've continued to work more and more with active managers you know i do find myself appreciating that in many cases they have good reason and by they i mean active managers mm-hmm. they have good reason to feel as though they would be giving away their intellectual capital or their secret sauce if they just agreed to daily holdings transparency you know and especially if the alpha they're generating is based upon a specific trading strategy or if it's truly just security selection I can I I've come to appreciate that sensitivity on part of the active manager no, and again, no. I've
2: come around a little. Well, I was going to say I've come around a little bit on this as well, just in the sense, again, as I mentioned, I do feel like maybe the transparency is a bit overrated. I don't know how many investors are going to an issuer site every single day to see what the holdings are. Uh, but, you yes. know, ultimately money speaks, right? And I think we'll know in terms of where the assets are flowing, whether or not this is ultimately something investors want.
0: No, I think that's a really good point. And I think that... For us, you know, where we sit at VIA, we're, we're indifferent about whether an active manager wants to use one of these structures or not. And so what we try to do is we try to help them think through all of these considerations, including will investors care? Will you be able to distribute your fund, you know, based on the, the strategy that you've laid out for yourself? if you decide to uh, add one of these, you know, non or semi-transparent wrappers. And so, you know, from from our vantage, we have relationships with all the sponsors of these wrappers and and we spend a lot of time researching them. So we can walk through the pros and cons of each approach with a particular active manager to help them determine um, which would be the best choice for them. But actually, where we spend the most time, especially in the beginning, is making sure that a manager understands the benefits of going down this route and where they might be making a sacrifice, especially as it relates to distribution and the fact that many broker-dealer platforms aren't comfortable yet uh, about proving the funds that utilize these structures. So it often ends up being a very honest conversation of, do you really need to use the wrapper or do you simply want to? You know, is it worth it to you to take on the additional cost and complexity and potentially delay achieving broader distribution? And so in some cases, you know, the manager ends up conceding on their own that it really isn't additive to what they're doing. And in some cases, it ends up being a no brainer to go down that route. But we just try to do our best to make sure that the manager understands those offs, you know, up front.
2: Amrita, um, just a couple minutes left here you have a very interesting perch in that you see a ton of new ETF ideas come across your your desk. And obviously, uh, your your firm is handling the back end on a lot of ETFs. And I, I asked this of my guest earlier, what is the recipe for ETF success? Like if you had to boil it down, what do you think are the key factors?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is a question we answer all day long, whether it's new clients or current. And I think you know, just as we talked about our views on on non semi transparent, um, you know, the answers continue to evolve over time. Uh, to ne- but you know, to me, it's before it was really felt like a, a product development strategy that that was the key for an ETF success. You know, how thoughtfully was the index put together? What missing gap in the market were you trying to fill? How well does your methodology provide access to that asset class or theme? Now, to me, it's a distribution and marketing leg strategy that's the recipe for ETF success. The product development piece is still important, no doubt. You still want to offer something to the market that's differentiated and makes sense for you to offer uh, either as a natural extension of your core competency or what your investor base knows you for. Uh, But now, there are a few things I always ask people that approach us wanting to launch a fund. I ask them, can you describe your ETF investment strategy in three sentences or less? Uh, what's the role of digital marketing in your strategy? And most importantly, how do you plan to raise your first $50 million in assets? And what about the $50 million after that? Because Nate, as you know, uh, $25 million and a three-year track record just doesn't cut it anymore. And saying, we're going to sell to the RA channel, or we're going to start tweeting, that to me does not constitute a sound distribution or marketing strategy. Uh, you know, lately I've been finding that I've, I've actually been advising people, certain people, to start with the capital raising first before they even start finalizing the investment strategy, you know, if it's a new one, or before they start calling partners such as my firm. You know, people often get intimidated uh, when I start to talk to them about what ETF break-evens look like, you know, ETF AUM break-evens, or what it takes to get their ETFs approved on a platform such as Merrill Lynch or LPL um, and what I'm finding is that the folks who aren't scared off or if they have good answers to some of those questions, those are the ETF sponsors I get excited about because as long as they have an interesting strategy and a sound way to talk about it and distribute it, those are the folks that I think are gonna be successful.
2: Well, your answer there aligns perfectly with my previous guest. We kind of batted this around a little bit and he landed on distribution. That distribution is king. Now the challenge is is that there's not really an easy, straightforward way to solve this. If there was, I think everybody would do it. Certainly, if you're a larger issuer and you already have built-in scale and, and you have that, that those distribution access points, that helps. But I think certainly for smaller issuers to exactly what you're saying, you have to have a real strategy there about how you're going to get your product in front of people. And uh, it, it is a real challenge.
0: No, that's absolutely right. And in fact, that's something that we've been spending a lot of time thinking about at VIA is how can we be further supportive of newer fund issuers and even um, our existing ETF uh, clients that have great strategies and are just trying to figure out a way to talk about it or just get in front of the right people and so in fact uh we actually hope to be introducing uh, a new solution to that or at least a service offering um for our clients hopefully uh in the near future that i'd be very excited to talk about when i can but you're right it's just we we've reached the point where we we realize our clients need that kind of support because i i I agree the 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 answer to the question is, is distribution
2: Well, Amrita, we're going to have to leave it there. Just an absolute pleasure connecting this week. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you for the invitation. Look forward to doing it again.
2: That was Amrita Nanakumar, president of Vidant Investment Advisory. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, I have a fun show lined up. I'll be joined by ETF Trends, Laura Krieger, we're going to go in-depth on pot ETFs. She's going to cover the entire pot ETF landscape. And then Cambria's Met Faber will spotlight their cannabis ETF, Toke. Uh, he'll also discuss what he's seeing in the marijuana market right now. Until then, have a great week, everyone.